Come on now. About to have church in church. You can't have church in church. You're supposed to have church on Friday night. Come on. Don't tempt me. Don't tempt me. I can't see your hands. Ready? All right, y'all. Man, it's such a shame to turn off the engine of a finely tuned machine, is it not? Like, who wants to pull up and power down that 1952 Porsche 911? Like, just let it run. So I just, I'm tempted to let y'all run, but you're scaring me. You're scaring me back there. Like, I don't know what y'all are capable of. And they're about to play some blue notes, and you're about to white, watch a white preacher try to sing blue notes. I don't know any blue notes. We do four time, right? We do this, but anyway. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, Jack. It's good to have you back. Jack Attack from Spain. So good morning to all. We actually have something rare today. We have energy in the room. Y'all can't see them, but there's a whole... You know what's tragic is they can't hear you either. They, literally, you think you just heard... They heard nothing. It's like being a parent. Hey, guys, dinner time. Nothing. Just nothing, right? Right. Anyway, they didn't hear a word you said, but we feel the energy, and it's fun to have some people in this room after all these months. Anyhow, good morning to all, wherever you find yourself it's always great to be here, but it's particularly good to be here today. It's great to have Jack and Maya and the kids back from Valencia, Spain. I used to think of them as on loan to Spain from here, but they've been gone so doggone long, right, that I think that their Espanol is on loan from Valencia to Austin. So don't fall in love with them. They're not staying. They're headed back to one of those great places that we all wish we could afford to live, Jack. We just do. What can I tell you? That's how that is. So we're now here at our final Sunday before the beginning of Passion Week, and it doesn't say this in my comments, but I'm concerned about my battery. This is just to demonstrate there's no polish up in this place. I think I'm on. We're now at our final Sunday before the beginning of Passion Week, which starts next Sunday with Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday. And it's been a fun run. And today is the fifth week, so it's week number five, as you know, if you've been following along in, with your Lenten box or with your lectionary. And if you're mystified how the preacher comes up with these texts. There's an app called the Lectionary App. I kid you not. So you can find that and you can follow along. Anyhow, you know we're at week five and we've been talking about home in one way or another. And by now you've hopefully been able to uh, make some peace with the wilderness because that's the context in which we've been talking about it. You see, the wilderness is as much our home as anywhere would be the takeaway there. And not only are there many ways to get home more than we were taught growing up, if we define home as the lap of God's love, anywhere can be home, if we are able to make peace with that, including the wilderness, right? Whatever that means to you specifically, and it will mean something differently to each of you. Our Old, pas our Old Testament passage today comes to us from the book of Jeremiah, not a place I camp very often, but let's read it together, reading from the New Revised Standard Version, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and it reads this way. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will not be, it will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke because therefore I was their husband, right, or their master, says the Lord. Verse 33. But this is the covenant that, covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 34, no longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, quote unquote, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. 
So as you know, a lot of our Bible is written in narrative form in one way or the other, written almost entirely in the voice of the person recalling the historic or the meaningful events. Some are eyewitnesses' accounts. Most aren't, to be honest. Other portions are poetry. Still other whole sections are personal letters between small communities and their founders. And then there are passages like this one, where according to the writer, God is doing the talking. These are rare and mostly occur in the form of prophecies, more often than not in the immediate context of some major crisis or calamity. Even rarer than passages where God is the speaker are passages like this one where God seems to want to clarify God's own purposes and scope of engagement with humankind. What am I saying? I'm saying that this is a special and weighty text that we're looking at today. Jeremiah wrote during a very difficult time in the history of ancient Israel, as I'm sure you know, the narratives have, that we've been reading the last few weeks all come from the wilderness journey after Israel was led up out of Egypt by Moses. But as I've been saying, the wilderness metaphor applies to any situation in which we are being taught to trust God, which honestly, under that definition, excludes very few situations. Lent draws from the two primary examples in our text of the desert, the 40-year exodus of the Hebrew people, and Jesus' 40-day experience immediately following his baptism. But today's story comes from a totally different part of Israel's history. 700 years after the Exodus, if that interests you, just to be precise. But the Hebrew people, as it turns out, would need a whole series of liberations from dominating forces. The bondage that they struggled with in, Israel, in, in Egypt while living under the pharaohs, they quickly found ways to repeat in Canaan land, in the Promised Land. Now, we don't need a ton of historical detail today to make sense of this passage other than to say the Hebrew nation, after the glories of King David's rule, fell into complete disarray. The consequences were dire. The nation was divided into a northern and a southern kingdom. The northern portion was called Israel and the southern tiny portion was called Judah. And they fought like only siblings can. Most of the prophets in the Old Testament focused on national disobedience or the rejection of God's covenant, for example, writing to the northern or the southern kingdoms specifically, and each of those prophets had their own little audience. But Jeremiah says God is speaking to both here, thereby dissolving their animosity as siblings, the reason, melting the reason for dividing in the first place. They are both his chosen people. Actually, if you must know, there are no other kind of people anywhere, no matter what you were taught growing up, all people belong to God. And if we had a room full, I might get a mm-hmm, which is white church for a amen. Anyway, according to the prophets, thank you, we got some live bodies in the room. According to the prophets, the disobedience of the people resulted in their being conquered by neighboring kingdoms. In some cases, especially in the north in Israel, they were even hauled off as slaves to serve foreign kings. And this new captivity, of course, completes a loop for the Hebrew people, as you can imagine. The story began when they were slaves in Egypt, but apparently they were so used to being slaves that they found ways to return, to literally recreate those bonds under new colonial powers in totally new lands. Boy, aren't you glad that we don't ever do the same thing, return to the things that bind us. Anyway, most of the book of Jeremiah is harsh and condemning, to be honest, but right here in the middle is this collection of prophecies and predictions. We have chapters 30 and 31, which are my favorite of the whole book, and they remind the listener what was the purpose of all of this. Liberation, home, full restoration, complete peace, total rest. 
We've been studying the various covenants God made with these wandering people this Lenten season, and we've started with Noah, as you remember, and we worked our way through Abraham, and we found our way through the ten teachings and that promise of a thousand generations of love that was given to Moses in the desert. And you might be asking yourself, it's a valid question, why all this evolution? Why would God need to restate and update and add new twists and new lane lines to God's dealings with humankind? I mean, our text today literally says, I'm making a new covenant. Was there something wrong with the old one? If so, what exactly had changed? Christians often say God is unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and forever, which I understand is tempting to believe if you are a human being subject to so much frightening chaos and disruption. But I don't believe God is unchanging as many people describe that idea. The text suggests otherwise today, for sure. Unless by unchanging you mean God, the source of unending love, that holds all of this together, the source of life that is always moving towards us is somehow still focused on accomplishing God's original goal of living in seamless union with all things, then, of course, I would have to agree to agree God is unchanging. The ultimate purposes of God are unchanging, but human language is slow to evolve, as you know, and so is our understanding of ourselves in relation to the divine. So things are always deepening, softening, adjusting, shifting, being reborn, changing, becoming new. At any rate, today we move past the stated covenants and the legal stipulations brought to us by Noah and Abraham and Moses to the epicenter of the purposes of God, the transformation and the inhabitation of the human heart, which really is good news. I'm not always certain what people are referring to when they mention the heart. And even if you and I could agree on what we mean by heart, it's doubtful that that would be precisely what the ancients meant by the same word. The word heart feels to me like a warehouse of miscellaneous concepts, if I'm honest. And I used to think I wasn't very in touch with my own heart because I thought that living on the surface was how to win at life, you know, above the feelings, above the emotions. I've since learned otherwise, and I'm actually pretty good at telling you what I feel deep inside. So it certainly seems like a law written on human hearts is a step in the right direction. It certainly feels like that. I mean, stone tablets aren't the worst place to find guidance and instruction, but they have some noteworthy limitations if you think about it. For starters, you got to put those tablets somewhere and remember what they say when you can't get to them for easy reference and reminder. Hello, fancy religious education. Not only that, if you put them in a physical place, you have to build something beautiful around them to make them feel special. Hello, building campaigns in schnazzy basilicas. And then you have to put someone or someone's in charge of keeping an eye on them, right? We wouldn't want anyone to help themselves, now would we? Hello, priesthood. Hello, clergy. And since being put in charge of all of this would be a ceremonial position of great honor and privilege by selecting the who that we identify as ideal and desirable as better than the rest, hello, power structure, hello, patriarchy. Because what would follow would be an endless codes of of teaching and requirements taught by these men in charge, complete with loud, trumpeted announcements of new additions to the list of who wasn't welcome. Hello, religious institution. Hello, exclusion of the non-ideal, non-behaving, inferior categories of society. Hello, hell. Goodbye. Good news. You see, laws written on stone tablets are better than no laws at all, but they come with enormous complexities for human society, don't they? 
So Jeremiah says that God said that he wanted to write these principles in a brand new place on the human heart, which feels more portable, more universal, more accessible than written in stone. Yep, I think I like the direction that this is going in. After all, we don't get very many places without our hearts, do we? As best I can tell, it's gone everywhere you've ever been. The fact that this claim is new according to God's self, his own speech in Jeremiah, means something. Remember, these were liberated slaves who were trying really hard to stay liberated. Rest assured that if God was adding something significant to a previous arrangement, it would lean, it would skew, it would literally break in the direction of greater freedom and greater liberation, deeper autonomy for all people. Of course it would. Geologists speak of the law of superposition, I'm sure you remember this from undergrad, which basically claims that sediment, when undisturbed, can be assumed to have the newest or the most recent deposits on the top. Well, the same, is ge same general idea applies to theology and revelation, only where chron chronological time functions as depth and place. Here's how that works, meaning more often than not, truth grows and builds over time, which means new covenants are updated covenants or updated agreements between God and humanity come later in time chronologically and bring new increased levels of consciousness. Not more bondage, but increased freedom and increased liberty. So when the text suggests that God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah wants to update an older idea, even if just to add a new location where one might find those other references, uh, those other older principles, it should be helpful, right? Like a move in the direction of greater access and increased availability. Surely that's the point of this, right? Well, it is, as long as this new location, the human heart is actually findable, and therein lies the rub, which implies something very important that we must not forget. Self-knowledge is integral to knowledge of the divine. Don't let anyone teach you otherwise. You cannot separate them now after this update to God's covenants with us. My heart is simultaneously the easiest and the hardest thing for me to connect with. It is the furthest from my reach and the nearest to me at all times. The heart is just funny like that. I've never been alive without it, but that doesn't mean it's easy for me to listen to or to even find it sometimes. You see, I know where my ideas are. I keep those pretty organized and neat. Try me sometime, ask me something about almost anything, and I can tell you what I think. Easy recall, good filing system, readily available, on tap. Just ask. I'll prove it. But ask me how I feel about something, or to explain the unfiltered motives of my heart, or just ask me what I need on any given day, and I use filler words to stall and distract while I fumble around for an answer that sounds helpful and true. The heart can be hard to find sometimes teaching us to find it, to value it, to understand it has always been the objective of God as far as I can tell, even if it hasn't been the clear objective of organized religion. You know this is true. You know there is an inner compass down in there somewhere, deep down inside. I'm sure you can think of occasions when your heart knew something for certain, something that your head was unsure of. I'm sure you can think of a time when something rose up within you, deep inside you, and you just knew it was worth listening to, that risk, that long shot, that first move that began your miracle. It came from somewhere, didn't it? It came from somewhere within. And I'm sure you recall the teachings of Jesus from the gospel where Jesus claims that the heart is the source of everything and that regardless of perfect legal compliance with the law, which would have been the prevailing concern of his contemporaries, if our heart is wild and untransformed, we are not 
living a life of abundant resonance as we were designed to. We know the significance of the heart, and yet we struggle, don't we? To find it, to nurture it, to listen to it when we most need to. It is breathtakingly close and desperately far at the same time. It's actually much, much easier, if you must know, to refer to those stone tablets for guidance, isn't it? To just farm out the responsibility of deciding what's right to something or someone else. It's way safer. It's way easier. Y'all, can you just make, you can just make a decent living, if I'm honest, telling people what they need to do next. It's one way that you can sort of get through this life. But if truth is written here on our heart, as Jeremiah claims God is saying, then all people in all places ought to be able to follow what God has inscribed there. Even when things don't make perfect sense, our inner compass can and should be trusted. We can be trusted. Now, I say this a lot, but it bears repeating if you're new here. I know religious leaders didn't tell you this when you were young. I know you were taught to trust the experts like I was. Tell me again, pastor so-and-so, what I'm supposed to do next. How exactly am I supposed to feel about this or that? I know, I know. We've all been there. We all grew up through that. But what happens when you spend a lifetime trusting someone else to interpret your heart for you? That's right. You become estranged from yourself, don't you? The best you can do is remain captive, take orders, do as you're told. But God is trying to liberate us. This liberation is an integration of heart and body. This is what God is working towards in us. Think of it as a reunion with your goodness, a rediscovery of your entirety, of your coming home to your deepest truth. You can call this faith. You can call this healing. You can call this salvation. Or since it's Lent and we're working with the metaphors and imageries of the wilderness, you can just simply call this trust that pretty much describes it. What if all the effort on behalf of God to teach us to trust him in the wilderness is another way of saying our journey is to learn to trust our own hearts because that's where God has chosen to write the teachings that matter most? If this is the case, might this set us free in some new ways? Might we release ourselves from our codependent ways of being? Oh, I think that might be true. I think that's available to us now. Let me tell you a story about this little faith community. And this will be especially interesting to those of you who are still new here at ANC, and there's many of you. We don't spend a lot of time anymore telling the story of how we became a fully affirming church. And if you don't know what that means, it means we welcome all, specifically speaking to the LGBTQ community. All are welcome, and we're clear about that. And it's been an interesting journey. You know, we used to talk about it so much back in 2017 and 2018 that I worried that it would become our only piece of recognizable identity. Even our beloved LGBT community members suggested that we back off the pedal a little bit. That's the truth. It really is. So in the fall of 2016, the board invited our congregation to join us in reading and praying for discernment in this area. It had been, I had been fully affirming for many, many years by that point. I had been uh, dropping hints to our then board of bishops about needing to make a, a courageous move as a local church. But at that time, about half of the ANC board was not affirming, and well over half of our congregation wasn't either. Needless to say, those bishops weren't either, which is why we are no longer part of that denomination. We're part of a new one in which we are safe. My journey to understanding the evil of homophobia and the sinful complicity of silence in the church began in the heart. Many, many, many years ago, God had gifted me and my family with a dear friend who was 
flamboyantly gay and a devoted follower of Jesus. My heart knew exactly how to love Alfredo, and that's all I needed. Some Christians try to get to a place of openness and affirmation of all people through the head. They try to do it through the text. They try to find scriptural sanction and textual support to love all, but that, that the law is already written on their hearts, you see. The problem is they've been taught to distrust their hearts, so they turn to their spiritual authorities for deeper understandings of the stone tablets, and they get stuck there because many spiritual authorities are more concerned about their job security and their pension and other such meaningless things. Many spiritual authorities are, for whatever reason, reluctant to teach people to follow the resonance of their own heart. But you see, dear ones, our hearts have always known how to love all. I'm sure you've heard the latest out of the Vatican this week. I read the news every morning as I think of what to see in the text and bring to this space. And sadly, after dropping a few hints over the last few months, last couple of years, that he might be willing to sanction same-sex civil unions, at long last, Pope Francis shut the door tight with a single word, negative. He put the largest religious organization on the earth in reverse, claiming that faithful Catholic clergy could not serve the Eucharist to quote-unquote sinners. Another injury, another insult, another bolted door for God's children. Now, you know that I am reluctant to disparage religious traditions of any kind. Test me on that. That is absolutely true. I think any root system can grow good fruit if the adherents find their way all the way back to love and justice. Many of you are Catholic, and you have always experienced me as fully supportive of that system. But this week illustrates the problem of rejecting the human heart as the legitimate and rightful location of the law of God. Pope Francis knows better than this. His heart is no doubt good, but Rome still thinks that they are in charge of deciding what is right. If Christ is in the world, in the Eucharist, or in the breaking of the bread, which I wholeheartedly believe that he is, then to limit or deny access to that divine presence based on our humanity is to grotesquely misunderstand the role of the faith community. Sorry, friends, that's how I see it. We serve the banquet table. We don't decide who gets to have a place here. And the thing is, is you already know I'm right. Your body knows I'm right. You know that hate is hate and that it falls way short of what we are capable of. You don't need me or Pope Francis to tell you what your heart has always known. Hear me, all people are equal, pleasing to God. Man, I paid $10.99 for an amen in this room. Good grief. <laughs> How about $12.99? The price is going up. At any rate, I tell that story. Anyhow, back in 2016, ANC followed her heart, and we took steps to clarify exactly what we meant when we say all are welcome. And many of you are here as a result of that. The heart actually leads well when we trust it. Am I saying that absolutely anything goes, that anything you feel is right, it's right enough just because you feel it? Nope, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying at all. There's a reason that this revelation that about which we're reading today in Jeremiah 31, this significant portion of his prophecy, there's a reason that it's located within a greater story. The truth written on your heart will resonate with every layer of God's revelation no matter where it comes from, no matter when it happened. It really might be the best news we've ever received that God's law is written on our heart, friends. Why? Because we all have access to it equally, universally, 
Nobody has to be anybody else's savior, which is such a relief because that's been a horrible role for any of us who have ever tried to play it. This final thought as we go our separate ways today. If God has written his laws on our hearts, then God has effectively eliminated the middleman, the interlocutor, the religious professional who thinks that his role is that of gatekeeper as decider of who is in and who is out. You see that, right? And don't tell me, Rome, that Peter was given the keys of the kingdom to lock people in. That was exactly not the point. He was given the keys to open it to all. Anyway, the gospel actually deconstructs the institution of religion altogether, if you notice. Jeremiah goes so far as to say that the role of the teacher is hereby dissolved, it's erased, it's eliminated, because God's truth will rise from within all people, not from the external world, but from the internal world. Remember verse 34, it says this, we just read it a few moments ago, no longer shall there Shall, shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Can you imagine a world in which it's no one's exclusive job to teach another person about God? Can you imagine a world in which people don't get to zoom around the globe and tell one another what God is like and what they must do to please him? Can you see how this original dream of God to rise from within every human heart, not from without, has barely been acknowledged as the actual true way? This week's announcement from the Pope hurts. It brings up all that pain again for the gay community trying to raise their beautiful families in the Catholic Church. Oh, how I wish St. Patrick were alive today to convert, again, the institutional Catholic Church to her real truth, to her organic mission, instead of more exclusion and indignity and shame. Bottom line, as long as you trust some external system, be they stone tablets or stone churches or the stones people throw at you for being different, instead of what's written on your heart, the gap will always be your fault. You see how that works, right? Resistance and struggle and the inability to achieve that stated behavioral ideal of your chosen institution, it'll always be your fault. The natural byproduct of relying on outside voices and institutions to tell you what your heart already knows, what God has already made clear, is thinking that there's something wrong with you. And that's a heavy load of shame and guilt to carry. And that's what love wants to solve. Letting that go is what salvation actually looks like. I wonder, is that good news today? Boy, I hope that it is. It is for me. Pray with me. Before Patrick comes to sing a song that will address this, and my encouragement to you is as Patrick sings the song, Just Be Sung Over. No need to sing along. The lyrics will be on your screen because they mean something. But just let Patrick sing these words over us. But Lord, we would ask that you attune us to our own heart, that you remind us today that truth rises from within, that communities of faith can teach us what a community of people getting free looks like, but that your voice can also speak profoundly in ways that we cannot deny if we're just willing to listen. 